Hey there, this is Pastor Brian Zond, and we are happy to make available for you the recordings from our Water to Wine gathering that we just concluded. And I have good news. We're going to do another one. There's going to be a Water to Wine gathering 2019. The dates are set. They are June 13, 14, 15. We don't have all the details yet. We're still working on that, but the dates are fixed, and registration is open, and you can get the early bird registration if you jump on that, and that'll save you a bunch of money. So anyway, enjoy these podcasts from Water to Wine 2018, and register for Water to Wine 2019. Thank you so much. What a gathering. Um, I don't say this all the time. I do believe in the way that and Brian, you talked about how we overuse that word, but I do think there is such a prophetic sense of timing of this. I don't think anybody's here by accident, and I'm so honored to be here among some of my very favorite people in the world, to hear my favorite preacher in the world already, uh, who, wants to, who wants to follow that, because nobody's as good as Brian to me. But um, what a wonderful night. Um, I do just kind of want to jump right in. Brian specifically asked me to talk about nationalism, and I couldn't believe it because everywhere I go, people are asking me, please don't talk about nationalism. We will bring you in if you can please just not talk about that. So I like, I can't believe that this is the very basis and this is the one and only time that this has happened. I have to tell you a story before I say anything else. And this is not a preacher story. What I mean when I say that is that some of you may not be aware of this. Most preacher stories are not true. All preacher statistics are untrue. So just remember this. Anytime a preacher uses statistics, it's never true. Stories, mostly not true. This story is decidedly true. And you'll see for obvious reasons why this is not something I would make up or why I'd want to. Yesterday, yesterday, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee about three weeks ago. My life is in upheaval as it often seems to be. And, um, I had just a little bit of time and I want to get my head and heart right before this gathering. It matters a lot to me. And I just feel like I need to decompress because I don't know if y'all are feeling it. I'm assuming you are. This is a heavy time. Is that fair to say? It's heavy. It's palpable. People who don't consider themselves to be spiritual or intuitive people, people you can feel the oppression right now. I mean, it is, it is tangible. And I'm not trying to go Frank Peretti on y'all for my <laughs> evangelical friends or turn this into a Carmen song or something, but like all the, I grew up listening to Christian rap and you know, it's like, it was, it was like gangster rap, except it was about shooting up devils. You know what I'm saying? T-Bone had this song. So you're, I'm so less cool. I'm not quoting Bob Dylan. I'm quoting T-Bone. I'm the lyrical assassin. My lyrics go book, book, book. Yeah. Another demon gets struck. Like that's the shooting up, but we're shooting up devils. So a lot of spiritual warfare stuff. I don't articulate all those things the same way that I used to, but I, I believe in them and if, if in a different way and it's, 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 it's heavy. So somebody had got me a, um, a gift certificate for a massage. Yesterday I went in to get a massage. See, I'm not making this story up. Also it was, (laughs) and I'm not, this is no slur or whatever. I don't think it'll play like that. Um, happened to be a male massage therapist. Another reason I wouldn't make this up. I mean, I've got some dude like like rubbing on me who smells like old spice. This is not something I'd make up for a <laughs> preaching illustration, but he was a massage therapist who was chatty. And I hate, I don't want to, I don't, I didn't want to be chatty. 
the world, everything, I need a break. I need to insulate. I'm an only child. I need to go inward for just a few minutes. I'm trying so hard to relax. And he asked me what I'm, what I do for a living while giving me a massage. And I said, well, I'm a writer, which is true. And I'm doing everything within my power to avoid coming anywhere within a country mile of saying I'm a preacher. And then he asked, oh, you're a writer. Yeah. And a little speaking, what kind of speaking do you do? One thing, you know, so then it's, now it's out there. And then he starts to tell me about his church. And this is what he tells me. First, he says, if you're in town this weekend, you know, July 4th is a very big weekend at our church. We do, we do weekend services all weekend long, like Easter, like Friday, Saturday, like all, all kinds of festivities. Then he's rubbing my back. Oh my, that's, that's interesting. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. We have a great church. The thing about our church, unlike a lot of other churches is that we're known for preaching the whole counsel of the word of God. Oh boy. We tell the truth. We don't leave anything out. What do you, well, good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And I mean, we have people who come to preach at our church, like Ben Carson came and spoke at our church. I'm like, man, that, that sounds cool. I am not making this up. Then he says, last year, Mike Huckabee came and preached at our church. And I said, cool. And, and I promise he was like building, it was like a crescendo to this. And this past summer, we had the girl from Duck Dynasty came and spoke at our youth camp. You've really got to come check out our church. I'm getting ready to come here and talk about nationalism. All I wanted was a break for a few minutes. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I responded the way those of you who know me would perhaps expect me to respond. I began pleading the blood of Jesus and started rebuking him in tongues. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's, that's preacher story. That, that, that did not happen. That did not happen. I just cussed under my breath and got bitter because I'm like, I, I want to break from thinking about all of that. I want to break from thinking about all of it. And I can't even get, I can't even get in a quiet room with some new age yawny music in the background and not think about it for a couple minutes. Nationalism, and that's a light way to open, and this is a heavy place to go, but I've never been more convinced than I am in this moment. And I, I am not, I don't think, the theological version of a shock jock. And I do not, at this point in my life, I am, I am so aged out and frankly just worn down. My soul is too weary. I, I don't, I don't enjoy conflict. I'm an, I'm a nice person. I want to hug and I'll get along. And it's the weirdest thing in the world to be called to do some of the things I feel called to do and to be terribly concerned about getting along with people. <laughs> so I, I'm, this is not to make waves or be provocative or whatever, but I feel like it's never been more clear than it is in this moment that nationalism, especially in an American context, is not a political ideology, or it's not just a political ideology. It is not a political philosophy. It is not um, simply about having kind of a nominal sense of pride in one's homeland or whatever. Nationalism at this point 
has been revealed very clearly to be nothing less than a rival religion. I want you to hear me say that. It's a rival religion. I don't think I'm stretching that. And I'm not trying to belittle anybody's lesser forms of patriotism or whatever. Feel free to cheer for the United States in the Olympics. That's okay. But it's people who are called to be part of the kingdom of God that transcends all borders, that knows no human borders. Inevitably, these kingdoms come into conflict. And while none of the things that are happening right now are new, ancient things are being revealed and exposed. And a 400-year-old principality of white supremacy is, that's been in long need of being cast out. It's simply being stirred up. It's not new. None of it's new. None of it's new. But it's so above ground and overt right now. That if we had any real questions as to whether or not, especially for those of us like me who come from more evangelical context or from or in some cases a Pentecostal context, if there were any questions as to where our loyalties actually lie, if these kingdoms are in conflict, there's no real question anymore. All that, all that is exposed. All that is revealed. And increasingly we're dealing with a, it's, it's, it is a rival religion. It's a rival religion because nationalism makes claims on us that only God can rightly make. Nationalism once makes claims of meaning when only God and the people of God and the story of God can make any claims on us for, for meaning. <laughs> Tell you what, everybody's fine with you talking about Jesus. We can say anything in the world that we want to about Jesus. So long as we do not touch the empire's economy so long as we don't question the economic systems and structures. If you haven't reread Revelation in a little while, please remember that Babylon is an economic reality. So long as nothing that we say brushes up against the empire's economy, nor against her wars, because in the empire, that is where you derive your sense of meaning. It's, it's all about money and war. So long as we don't touch those things, we're fine. Always makes me think about the apostle Paul. Him and Silas are out preaching. This woman starts following them around and she's screaming in a loud voice. Behold, these men are servants of the most high God. Listen to them. Listen to these men. They're servants of the most high God. And she's saying it over and over and over again. Which a helpful footnote on that, especially in this particular day and age. There's nothing technically theologically wrong with anything that she's saying. What she's saying is right. They are servants of the most high God. People should listen to apostles. What's wrong with that statement? But see, that's the trick, you guys. The wrong spirit at times can say the right thing. And that's why a whole lot of people are being deeply misled, deeply deceived right now, because the wrong spirit can quote chapter and verse, just like Satan does to Jesus in the wilderness. Does anybody hear what I'm saying right now? The wrong spirit can say the right thing. Take, we can stack Bible verses. Brian talks about this so eloquently. We can stack Bible verses for almost anything. The, the wrong spirit can say the right thing, but when there's no discernment, Paul recognizes the distraction that's happening here. And he turns around and casts the evil spirit out of this, out of this girl. And of course, what happens is he and Silas are thrown into prison. Why? Because this girl was actually making the townsfolk a great deal of money. 
And the fact that now this spirit has been cast out of her that has actually empowered her to do these things that are bringing revenue into the town. That's the unforgivable sin. That's the unforgivable sin. And so here we are in, in this Babylon. Here we are with these systems trying to discern what it is to live faithfully and how it is to live faithfully. And, uh, you know, as those of you who are church leaders know, and I know a lot of people here are, it's becoming increasingly difficult to know how to speak about these things because, and not that we're doing this right, but I do think a lot of us in this room, we are striving, however imperfect we may be doing so, we are striving to find some kind of a kingdom framework and a Jesus framework to speak about these things. But we live in a world that's entirely established on this grid of conservative and liberal and right left. And so matter, no matter what we say or what we do, everybody's trying to figure out where we are on that grid. Now, when you're attempting to live in the reality of the kingdom, which is the only thing Jesus really talked about, the gospel of the kingdom, the only gospel that is, is the gospel of the kingdom. When you're attempting to build your life on the gospel of the kingdom, you know, after a while, you just, we don't care about those categories. We're not supposed to. It just, it doesn't matter to us. We don't think that way, but everybody's trying to peg us. And right now is an especially disorienting time for a lot of us because we don't, we don't know what to do with that. The, the goalpost has moved. There's a lot I could say about that grid of conservative and liberal. I hate the words, hate the words right and left at this point. But you know, at least historically, even if we talk about these things in a political sphere, what was meant for the most part, it's more loaded than this, but I think this is a pretty fair basic definition. It was about the size and the scope of government. We have some people who come to our church who believe in a really small limited government because they don't trust institutions and structures. Well, hey, you can hold that position and be a faithful follower of Jesus. But we also have people coming to our church who believe that what it is to follow Jesus is to combat injustice on a structural level and leverage systems and all that. You can hold that position and be a faithful follower of Jesus. The trouble now, (laughs) the conversations we used to have are, were things like whose responsibility is it to take care of, of the poor? What, what is the role of the church? What is the role of the government? Is there a role for, for both? Those are the kind of conversations that we used to have. But now in a time where this demonic dehumanizing rhetoric becomes more and more common is that we're not having conversations about who should take care of the poor. We're actively vilifying the poor. We're demonizing refugees and immigrants. We're demonizing whole swaths of people that we somehow deem to be other. And I don't feel like that I've moved as a hillbilly Pentecostal, as I self-refer, to some, ex- some kind of weird form of liberal theology when I say, as a Christian, you don't get to do that. You don't get to vilify the poor. You don't get to dehumanize people that are made in the image of God. You don't use language like animals. You don't talk about infestation. Try reading Father Greg Boyle's last two books, starting with Tattoos in the Heart, and see what it looks like when gang members come to understand what it is that they are created in the image of God. That's what the kingdom looks like in the world. 
So now we're living in this weird moment where saying basic kingdom things all of a sudden feels really, really politically charged in all kinds of directions. When you're just trying to talk about things that are, that are plain gospel, let me be clear. I want to avoid all of it. I have never felt more conflict avoidance. So help me God in all of my life. I want to crawl under the covers. I don't want to be on Facebook. It's a zoo. Bad, bad people live there. I'm just kidding. That, that would be me doing what I'm preaching. If you hear what I'm saying, I, I just, I want to self-protect. I just want to get, I don't, I don't want any of it. Right. I don't want to talk about it. In fact, I understand how we got to where we are. Because as much as we can talk about kind of the old guard religious right, and that's, that's another conversation maybe for another time, I really think the reason that we're in the moment that we are right now doesn't have a lot to do, in my opinion, this is only my opinion, I'm like Paul and Corinthians here, there's like, you know, well, this would, I'm not saying this is the Lord, but this is my perspective. I don't think that where we are right now has so much to do with kind of the old guard religious right or any of that. I think what happened is that well-meaning Folks like us. And when I say folks like us, I mean white men like me. (laughs) That's the we I'm talking about. White men like me very sincerely decided, well, we just want as many people as possible to come to our church and hear a a message about Jesus. And we don't want there to be any obstacles to that message. We we want any and all kinds of people to be able to come. And so we're just going to make it about Jesus, about making about Jesus kind of a depoliticized, ahistorical Jesus that you pray and ask him into your heart or whatever. So what I think happened is that then this vacuum opened up because now all of a sudden Jesus, to call Jesus as Lord is not a political claim. He's the Lord over the fairyland of spirits and souls. He's not the Lord over the world. Following Jesus no longer has political implications. I'm not talking about partisan implications, political implications. In other words, as if what we believe about the kingdom of God doesn't have anything to do with how we live in the world. That's what I mean when I say the kingdom has political implications, how we order our lives in real life. That's all I'm talking about, right? I mean, these are, these are kind of, these are kind of basic claims. So I think what happened is that in a desire to not have conflict and get everybody to just come and pray the sinner's prayer, The impression that we gave folk is so long as you believe Jesus is Lord in your little head, so long as you think that Jesus is Messiah, it doesn't matter what you believe about anything else. Is that making sense to anybody? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Oh, no, 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 no. We're we're not here to talk about real life. It's just about Jesus. Oh, ouch. It's a problem. Because then Jesus is no longer Lord over the world. What I'm trying to say is, I'm trying to name things that I do not want to name. I'm trying to, na- I'm trying to name things that I don't want to name because the things that I name implicate me. Because the things that I name, <laughs> I end up throwing my own self under the bus. I have to look at things that I don't want to look at. I don't want to name these things. But note that in Mark chapter 5, that when this... Jesus comes to this man who has been thoroughly demonized. There is a legion of demons inside of him and he's manic. He's out of control. He's howling and cutting himself with stones. That the first thing Jesus asked this man, Jesus asked the question, what is your name? Because we cannot cast out spirits that we will not name. 
We cannot repent of sins that we will not name. I am not an apologist for any one particular tradition here. I'm such a mutt myself, but I will tell you, one of the reasons that I do think it is helpful to identify with any particular Christian tradition, even having that great question about tradition, no matter what the tradition is, is that if you name any tradition, then immediately you identify yourself, not just with what's bright and beautiful about the tradition, but you have to own the sins of that tradition. Now, I don't know about y'all. That's the reason why I don't really want a tradition. I have cherry picked from the best of all Christian traditions, and I am a perfect amalgamation of the best of each one. Isn't that what we want to think, right? Oh, no, I am, I am a product of what's best about Catholicism. What's best about Orthodoxy? What's best about Pentecostal with none of the downsides. But if you name a particular tribe, you have to own the sins of that particular tribe, which means, oh, golly geez, you got to start from a posture of humility and confession. That's why it's so important. We have to name some things. We have to be able to name some particular kinds of strongholds that exist within us. Man, I'm saying a lot of things right now. You know, um, conservative liberal. (laughs) One of the reasons that this can be especially frustrating for me and because uh, maybe because this stuff is exhausting me more and more, I'm speaking a little bit more candidly. Again, not trying to be shocked jockey. (laughs) I just can't believe I tried to make that do an adjective. It just, I make up words when I'm in a big way of preaching, but it's just one of the reasons that I so struggle with this is to be real candid right now. You know, honestly, y'all like I, because I move in and out of all kinds of worlds right now, I I preach in a lot of different kinds of churches. People are not going to let me do this for long. They're not going to let me easily move in and out of these spaces. But right now for the moment, I still am (laughs) for, for a little while longer. And what I've learned, and I I don't say this with any kind of judgment because I identify with all that. So many of us have seen kind of on the conservative side of the church, we have to use that word. We've seen this nationalistic idolatry and we've seen the lines blurred between kingdom and cross. And we've seen people who are more, who who cling to their, to their guns and to their swords more so than they do lift up the cross of Jesus. And we've seen how many sermons that I've listened to. And I'm not just saying this, where I've actually heard preachers say things like, like, like belittle the Sermon on the Mount. I, people say to me, preacher, like you got to turn the other cheek. I'm not going to turn the other cheek. I'm like, you do understand it was the Lord of the church who said that. And what John Paul II called the Sermon on the Mount, the Magna Carta of discipleship. Might want to rethink this, right? I mean, we're talking about the Lord of the church. And we see that kind of idolatry on the right. And we see the way, and I, and I believe this is all in my heart. We're losing a generation of our sons and daughters. We're doing incalculable damage. We have no idea how much we're not even beginning to measure it right now. The damage that we're doing, the sons and daughters of the church. Oh, it's so, it's, it's so exhausting. And yet what I often found, find in progressive circles, even where sometimes I might feel like I can breathe a little bit easier in some cases is that when you don't have a spirituality that's based in a tradition, when there is not a rootedness in prayer and contemplation and deep spiritual practices, and all you have is ideals and ideas about justice and peace, I'll just be honest with you. A lot of forms of liberalism, they're, are not, they're just not a threat to anybody because they always collapse in and, of, in and of themselves. You can't transform the world without a robust spirituality. Read something like Charles Marsh's wonderful book, The Beloved Community on the Civil Rights Movement. How that the movement kind of begins to fall apart when post-King, people begin to abandon the theological framework of it. Because it's specifically that frame story of the Exodus 
and God is liberator. That's what, that's what makes this thing go. And so it's terribly frustrating. It's like as much as the conservative idolatry drives me bananas. And then people feel like they've got to choose between, are we going to be in a part of a church that's kind of open and there's an open table for any and all kinds of people? Or are we going to be in a church where there's power? Ooh, boy, isn't that horrible to feel like you've got to make that decision? But I do think for those of us that are maybe a little more bent towards the progressive, we might need to be reminded of just how important the power really is, especially in a time like this one. Because as much as we might be aggravated at particular personalities, don't you understand? The issue right now is not with any particular personality from the top on down. What we're wrestling with is not personalities. We are wrestling, friends, with principalities and powers. We are not wrestling with flesh and blood. Or as Paul will say elsewhere, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. If there's not a prayer life, if there's not a rootedness, if there's not a connection, I'm not talking about legalism or moralism here. I'm talking about the, the dynamism that comes from life in the spirit, where we interact with God, we abide in God and God's word abide in us. If we don't have that, then all the great ideals of justice and equity in the world, what happens is, is that when we go out into the world and we start to do real ministry, we encounter real evil and we encounter real pushback from principalities and powers. And we end up, if you remember this story from the book of Acts, like those boys, the seven sons of Sceva, anybody remember the seven sons of Sceva? who have heard Paul going around and casting out spirits and exercising the demons. They think this is so great. They find a demon-possessed man and they try to cast out the spirit. And in this really hilarious passage, the evil spirit inside this possessed person screams out through this man, Jesus do I know and Paul do I know, but who are you? And what I'm telling you It is that if we're really serious about the love and the peace and the peacemaking of the kingdom and the reconciliation at the heart of the kingdom, if we're really serious about that, we better not misunderstand this. It's going to take the real power of a real Holy Spirit. It is. It is. And three of you really agree with that. Thank you. It is the real power of the real Holy Spirit. Like it takes that. For as much as there are so many things in the world right now that freak me out, that's the thing that excites me the most in this moment is that, honestly, we've been in power for so long. Let's just tell the truth. We haven't needed the Holy Spirit to do church. What are you talking about? This is a franchise, baby. This is like Chick-fil-A. So long as we do the right things at the right location and put the, we can just unpack that church right out of the box. And we know that so long as we do it this way, we're guaranteed to get these results. I don't even know if that's always bad. I just know it doesn't require the Holy Spirit to work. I shouldn't have used Chick-fil-A because some of y'all are like, well, we know why that's worked is because they do have the Holy Ghost. (laughs) I didn't mean it like that. You know, they they play Michael W. Smith right there. (laughs) But you hear what I'm saying? And now we're in this time where it's like, oh, wow, in order, in order for us to bring the gospel of the kingdom to bear in the world, oh, oh, this is actually going to require the Holy Spirit. 
We have a joke in our family that if somebody, if we ask somebody for prayer, it's, it's terrible because we all love Jesus. We love each other. But it's a joke in our family. If someone asks for prayer that we'll say, has it come to that? <laughs> my, my, I'll ask my, my dad for prayer with some, Jonathan, has it come to that? <laughs> He's a preacher. It's a, it's in good, but you hear him say like, yeah, it's, it's, it's come to that. <laughs> it, it's going to require the Holy Spirit. It's going to require creativity. <laughs> and I'll be honest with you. I, I do get exhausted from feeling like, especially with that grid I was talking about before, everybody's constantly trying to entrap you and label you and just kind of, oh, I get, I, get so, I get so tired of those games. But what I love about it is I think in the midst of that is it's awakening a hunger and a thirst among God's sons and daughters for something real. And can I say it like this? Something wild. At the heart, actually, of all Christian traditions is a wildness. <laughs> this, all the stories of all God's people in all times and places always start with an undomesticated God. And when the people of God get their backs against the wall and they're no longer romanticizing the past because, you know, all that. So, you know, there, there are no more delusions anymore of being able to go back where we came from, you know, back to the good old days when nobody cussed on television and we were able to, you know, have Jim Crow laws and oppress people. Is it that weird? What a weird world that we live in. See, that's what's happening right now is it's being revealed to us. Finally, finally, we're having to grapple with this. Even the good old days actually weren't good old days. (laughs) And so whatever it is that we're looking for, it's not in the past, but in that future reign of God that is available to us even now in Christ, that, that kingdom of the heavens that is, all, that is all around us, that kingdom that is at hand, it's within our grasp. And it, God wants to bring this crashing from the future into the present. I'll, um, I meant to say more about my own story. I will just say this much. You know, I've been on such a, I've been on such a weird journey for so long. And it's interesting because I grew up in kind of these rural Pentecostal churches where, you know, it was sweaty and I'm, I'm sweaty right now. And it was, it was pretty wild. There were a lot of things that I didn't connect with about my tradition culturally. There were a lot of things that, where I felt like people were having these really electric experiences of the presence of God. And I often felt like I was kind of had my face pressed up against the glass and I didn't quite wasn't quite tapping into the thing that everybody around me was tapping into. And so a lot of times I felt... I felt left out of all that. But you know, part of what happened with me, part of my own renewal, I actually came from a rediscovery of my own tradition. Where the more I came to understand about Azusa Street and this one-eyed son of a slave who starts preaching in a shack in 1906 and 50 years before the civil rights movement, People of all ethnicities are worshiping together and women are preaching because we simply took seriously the idea that when the spirit of God is poured out, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And the more I got begin to be tapped into that spirit. And here's the thing that started really messing with me. The kind of Pentecostalism I grew up in was fairly nationalistic in a lot of ways. I didn't know till I was 30 years old that my pioneering Pentecostal preacher grandfather uh, who I... I I mean, he died when I was three, but I feel like he's cast a long shadow of my life. I didn't know until I was like 30 years old that my grandfather was actually a conscientious objector during World War II. Because all the way up until then, Pentecostals were so serious about peacemaking. And and I'm not trying to convert anybody in any kind of strict ideology here. That's not the point. But the point is, 
The movement has radical roots. And by the time I came of age, we didn't tell those kind of stories anymore because that was an embarrassment to us. He was a tough, hard man, but was so convinced and convicted about the peace of God that he just, he, he, he could not fight in the war. The more I begin to tap into those kinds of things. And the more then I begin to discover people like my mentor, sister, Margaret Gaines, she, um, this is the lady I, I talk about her everywhere I go. I called her my spiritual grandmother. She just passed away in November of last year, very much still feeling the sting of that particular loss. But she was this woman who grew up in Pell City, Alabama, 19 years old, left for the mission field in Tunisia with no support. Everybody said, you can't do that as a single woman. From there, ultimately moves on to the Middle East where she comes to this little Palestinian community called Abu to this village where she established a church and a school. And I could tell you a million stories about Margaret. But Margaret was one of those people that was just so saturated with the presence of God. I can't say this about many people, but some of you know what I'm talking about. There are those people here and there in the world that to be with them in a, I know God's everywhere, but in a palpable way, it it is to sit in the presence of Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? To be, it is to, to be filled with that light and with that presence. She was so strong. She could be ornery. And yet she's the most tender person I've ever met. I mean, to have the, 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 this kind of strong will, but this tenderness. And I, I was so, I was so marked by her life and by her witness. And, and I really am landing the plane here. I think even in context of talking about nationalism tonight and naming some of these things, Margaret is really looming larger than usual in my mind right now because it was from Margaret growing up in a certain context where I inherited a certain kind of political ideology. It was from her where I first came to understand that all the issues I thought I understood about Israel and Palestine were not as clear cut as I thought and that the Bible was not maybe didn't say some of the things that I thought it said. Boy, I learned so much about the kingdom through her, not some ideological liberal. I'm talking about a church of God lady from Pell City, Alabama, but doing this work on the ground, the way that she opened me up to peacemaking, the way that she opened me up to reconciliation, the the, the heart that I have to this day for Palestinian people, uh, all of this came through Sister Margaret. But one of the things that was so remarkable about her and part of what convicts me and kind of stings me about her witness now is that no matter what you did to Margaret, as strong-willed as she was, there there was just something about her that's just so tender. I brought up a few moments ago Father Greg Boyle who wrote these, like Father Greg, I feel like has that kind of prophetic tenderness about him. Uh, If if you're familiar with Jean Vanier who founded the Larch movement, I, I only sat in his presence one time and I wept for 45 minutes because there was a gentleness, there was a tenderness on that man that can only be described as something holy. That's what holiness looks like. And part of what I think is um, that, that we're really grappling with in this moment, so many of us in this room, I think, are coming to a place where we're beginning to name some of these realities, to name some of these principalities and powers, to name things that need to be named. But we're in a context where everything is so volatile right now and our language and our speech is so harsh and so violent to where we just kind of get sucked up into that. And we end up, it's interesting, if you pay too much attention, if you, if you try to oppose something too directly, inevitably you end up taking on the energy of the very thing you're trying to oppose. And you start to become like it. 
And even though you might be saying things that ideologically are opposite, you're taking on that energy. Do you hear what I'm saying? Reminds me of when they accused Jesus of casting out spirits by the power of Beelzebub. And what does Jesus say? Satan cannot cast out Satan. Satan cannot cast out Satan. And that I think is why a time like this is especially crucial for people like us to come in and be renewed and to be rejuvenated and for you not to feel like you're on the margins of your community for just a moment, to feel safe, to feel cared for, to feel all right. You need that. You need that. Y'all have been on edge too much. I have been on edge too much. I totally felt like even praying about this gathering before, I just keep having this image of the prophet Elijah when he's been running from Ahab and Jezebel and that whole thing. And they've been killing all the prophets and he thinks he's the only one left. And after he gets a nap and after he has a little bit of meal, then God speaks to him and tells Elijah, oh, actually there are 7,000 out there who have not yet bowed their knee or kissed the bale. There's more out there than what you know. We need that kind of safety right now in this space. We need that kind of soul care. We need to pray. We need this kind of lively connection with the presence of God. Because if we don't, that bitterness is going to eat us alive. We'll be carried out with the tide. We'll try to fight fire with fire. And if there's anything I could leave you with, and I, and I, I am leaving you with this, and then we'll go to some Q&A. Y'all, the world is just in such desperate need right now of prophetic tenderness, desperate need of it. You can't fake that. Prayer is the only thing that makes that possible. Worship is of the triune God is the only thing that can tenderize us in that way. Go see that new Mr. Rogers film. You want to know what the presence of God looks like? I'm not playing about this. That, 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 that thing, that disarming tender thing. <laughs> okay. I really am done. Sister Margaret. So many stories, but one that I, I keep thinking about this one particular image where one day she's in the village and this is in the seventies and I forget what it was. There was some kind of us military action that was very controversial in the region. And Margaret had a man who she didn't know who comes up and starts yelling at her, cursing her and cursing the grave of her parents and of her grandparents, just awful things. And because it's Saturday and everybody's in the market, the whole village is watching. She's on the spot. And in this moment, and I know her well enough to know where I can, I can literally see the tears in her eyes. And when she would tell about this with tears, she said to him, my brother, I don't know what I've done to offend you, but I am so, so sorry. Please forgive me. And whenever you're done being mad, please remember that God loves you. I love you. And I still want to be your friend. And not knowing what to do, the man just kind of stormed out. So she talked about going back to her room in this place of despair. The, the village saw this and she's wrestling with what all this means and what it means for the church and the community. And she said the Holy Spirit spoke to her. And I feel like this is the right place to end this talk. This is what she said the Holy Spirit said. In that moment of prayer, God said to her, the sweetness of my spirit will dissolve the acidity of the spirit that's coming against you. The sweetness of my spirit will dissolve the acidity of the spirit that comes against you. Thanks so much for your time. Derek. Thank you, Jonathan.
All right, we have some uh, time briefly for uh, Q&A, and we had, I think, uh, two or three gentlemen who had a question. So let me start. Uh, is there a lady among us that has a question? We want to maybe start our Q&A that way to let all the women among us know that you have a voice. It matters. Um, any of the ladies among us with a question, uh, wave it high, way in the back. Yes. Doug, can you, Doug's coming with a microphone. Thanks so much for what you said. Really resonated. Um, I have a question about prophetic tenderness, particularly when it's very, 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 very difficult to muster. <laughs> I understand that uh, being in prayer and being in meditation is a wonderful long-term way to get there. But in the short run, when a gentleman who's very in fan of our government kind of puts his hands on your shoulder and tries to quiet you when you're talking, what do you do about prophetic tenderness right then? Mm. Real question. Mm. In, in the moment when... <laughs> yes, in the moment when, uh, you know, someone is, is in your space and in your face and, and uh, very, very actively confronting you and yourself in, in that moment... Yeah. In, in, a, in a more maybe pedestrian context than the story that you just told, yeah. how do we, in, in real time, in that moment, any suggestions? Well, well that's, you know, that, that, is, that is the question. And I think the first thing I would feel the need to say, and maybe I don't have to always give this disclaimer, but I'm just, I don't know, I'm just very conscious about the fact that, I don't know, like as a, as a, this, I'm this six foot five white man and, you know, I'm never going around, especially in a time that's complicated, trying to police how other people should or should not respond to things. You know, my sense of it is just as a student of King and Gandhi and the civil rights movement and all of that kind of thing, you know, I think part of the idea is that when even in, and especially perhaps in the midst of a moment like that, you know, I, I left this part out, but it's a small detail. One of the things I remember Margaret saying about that particular story I told at the end, looking back, is that what she, what she said God specifically said to her, because, you know, the church that she pastored, that she started, was actually a fairly small community. And she said the Lord showed her later that that day in the market was the largest pulpit she was ever going to have to that community. And I do think that there really is a way that, uh, and you know, I, I feel like someone like uh, Brad Jerzak in particular could do this so much better than I can. But you know, I feel like this is even how the cross works. Part of the, the, part of the subversive power of the cross is that it exposes the injustice of the oppressor. It exposes the injustice. It exposes the oppressor for who they are. And so I think when we are able, I mean, first and foremost, I don't know. I, I, I've got some friends right now who are unsafe places where if someone's coming after them, my first priority, honestly, would be for them to get to safety. But beyond that, I think, you know, when we can in that moment speak a word of gentleness, um, turn the other cheek, all those things we read about in the Sermon on the Mount, it becomes a powerful moment. And I'm going to say a word that I think a lot of people won't like to hear. It becomes a powerful moment of theater. The civil rights movement, they weren't afraid to talk about theater. It was a slur to say that's political theater. Well, of course it's theater <laughs> because what's actually happening in these particular cases and moments is that the larger drama of what's happening in culture is being reenacted in real time in this moment. 
And when I think we're able to respond with a soft word, with a gentle word, um, I, I, I think it's, I think it's incredible how God's Holy Spirit can use that. So I'm trying to say that in a way that doesn't feel like legalistic or strict or doesn't take into account how complex the world is right now. But I do think it's actually right in the thick of those very moments that the, that the pulpit and opportunity can be really large for injustice to be exposed. So it's a great question. An inadequate answer, I'm sure. Another question from a lady or a gentleman. Yes, hold on. So um, I'm in a I'm in a new town, um, and one of the I guess the things that I've struggled with I guess Brian really led. It, it was like it was about me, where he said, "Am I alone here?" Yeah. Um, sorry. How do you how do you find somebody uh, that's willing to mentor you and, and walk through this journey with you? Uh, I better stop, but that's my question. How do you find someone? Man, I, I, I feel and hear the pain in that question, and it's a real pain. I think, and especially, I feel like I'm around so many people right now who are desperate for spiritual fathers and mothers in this way and feel like they can't find them, which is, I think, a real crisis of our time. You know, my sense of it is, and this feels like a lame answer too, but you know, I think that as you begin in a context that is safe to share your own heart and your own concerns. And even if that is, uh, I don't even want to talk about it because it seems like so like whatever. And for all the dangers we can talk about are social media. How many of us are here because some form of social media connected to one of us to somebody else where, you know, it is like the old police song message in a bottle. You, you threw something out there and you had no idea where it was going to land. And somehow (laughs) that message in a bottle got on a short, someone, someone else has read this that feels this way. I mean, honestly, some of the folks that I consider to be some of my most like influential mentors in the faith are people who I've connected with in recent years. And it has been through random stuff like social media. And it has been through like uh, conferences and settings like this. And I would even like, uh, I'm not trying to make this into a weird moment, but because I do believe the Holy Spirit is at work in moments like this, I would really encourage you for some of you who are in this room or in this space in particular, um, who, who are a little further on in the journey, please be open for the Holy Spirit to use you in precisely this way. Please be proactive about it because, and I say this as someone who doesn't feel quite like the young guy anymore and feeling like God's pushing me more and more into a space of fatherhood, which is not something I know about biologically. And part of what I feel like is shifting in me is that like in the past, I wouldn't know how to father, mentor, or care for because I would have thought that would have been like, you know, presumptuous and well, they don't need me. They don't need my voice. They don't need my life. I don't have anything to offer. And and actually in the name of being self-deprecating or humble or whatever, we actually end up missing powerful opportunities to connect with sons and daughters in the faith who really, really need elders. So those of you who are elders, I would encourage you even in this space, in these couple days that we have to proactively seek that out. And I would also encourage this, that even if it feels a little bit weird, I think sometimes you just outright have to ask because some of those folks who I've identified where I've said, I really feel like that there's a connection there, but there's no way that person would talk to me or wonder whatever. You'd be surprised. (laughs) when you share your heart and share your story with one of those folks, the people who will actually be responsive to that and feel honored by that. So yeah, thank you for, for that great question. Thank you, Jonathan. Let's give him a hand one more time. Thank you, Jonathan.